This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. People quit their jobs all the time. Maybe it's over money or long hours. Whatever the reasons, the process of quitting typically starts when the employee provides their employer with a notice of resignation. This could be in the form of a letter or verbal notification. Texts, voicemails, and sticky notes are usually not appreciated. In most cases, the customary period before the individual's last day is two weeks. Theoretically, enough time for the employer to find a replacement. If protocol continues to be followed, during the final week of the individual's employment, a farewell potluck will be organized and a card signed by the team will be presented. That's the way it plays out normally. There may be a few tears and some hugging, but that would be the extent of any real drama. Then there are the not-so-normal departures. They're often taken as office folklore, but stories of an employee quitting in spectacular fashion have been circulating water coolers for generations. The majority of those legendary moments, however, turn out to be nothing but fiction, or, if they did happen, the actual details differ vastly from the current adaptation. But every now and then, that story you thought couldn't possibly be true turns out to be exactly how you heard it. Sometimes, the stories are funny. Take the Starbucks employee who composed a beautiful song for his manager. In December 2019, the Toronto-based barista performed his heartfelt piece live from inside the Starbucks. As coffee and latte lovers watched, the guitar-wielding songwriter announced the start of the show. Someone in the shop began recording. Hello, everybody! Can I get your attention super quick for one second? Um, I've been working here for a few years, and it's been so nice to work here. My lovely co-workers see all your lovely faces every single day. And uh, I have a song for my manager, uh, but I also hope you enjoy it. Dear manager, I've been working here for so long. I've got something that I want to tell you, so I thought I would sing a song. Fuck this Like many breakup tunes, the melody is simple and the lyrics are powerful. It's easy to see why this is a perfect example of an employee's clear and concise notification of departure. The fact that it was delivered in a refreshingly catchy song is just the kind of bonus I'm sure his now former manager will forever appreciate. Thank you guys. Goodbye.
Not all employers are so fortunate to receive a thoughtful work of art, like a song, as a notice of resignation. Instead, some employers can be handed a public relations nightmare, millions in stolen property, have their businesses physically destroyed, or even worse. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to this episode of True. If there were awards for giving the proverbial finger to the boss, a 26-year-old television correspondent in Anchorage, Alaska, should have received one when she planned her own epic last day. On September 21, 2014, KTVA news reporter Charlotte Green was featuring her story on Ballot Measure 2, a bill that would reform medical marijuana laws in the state. The piece strongly advocated for the passing of the bill and, at the same time, highly promoted a local business called the Alaska Cannabis Club. The Alaska Cannabis Club opened six months before the story aired and operated as a network of medical users and growers. The club collected what they called donations and membership fees as a way for users to compensate growers for their product. In other words, it's what law enforcement considered an illegal pot shop. So, not only was the business clearly attempting to skirt Alaska cannabis laws, it was, for some reason, now being promoted by the local news. But why? There was something not quite right about this report, and when the piece ended and the cameras went back to Charlotte Green, she explained. On live TV, the newswoman confessed to a major conflict of interest. She admitted to viewers that the owner of the Alaska Cannabis Club was, in fact, herself. Now, everything you heard is why I, the actual owner of the Alaska Cannabis Club, will be dedicating all of my energy toward fighting for freedom and fairness, which begins with legalizing... She had used her position at the station to get some free advertising for her side business. Unethical? Yes. A career-limiting move? Absolutely. Knowing the on-air disclosure would mean the end of her job at the television station, Charlo Green made the awkward moment even worse when she announced her resignation. And as for this job, well, not that I have a choice, but fuck it, I quit. As she walked off set, the camera returned to a stunned anchor, who appeared to be at a complete loss for words. All right, we apologize for that. We'll be, we'll be right back. Mean, uh, pardon for us. Meanwhile, the vote yes on... Hours after the incident, the station released a public apology and confirmed that the employee was no longer with the network. Good evening. By now, many of you have seen one of our reporters use inappropriate language and quit her job during Sunday's newscast. We apologize. In addition, she had a personal and business stake in the issue she was reporting, but did not disclose that interest to us or to you. This betrayed the basic bedrock of responsible journalism. Thank you for watching our news broadcasts, and be reassured our mission... The video of Charlotte Green quitting went viral on social media and news outlets, no doubt capturing the nightmares of HR managers the world over. In a twist to an already twisted story, two years after the stunt, the Alaska Cannabis Club was raided by authorities and eventually shut down. Charlo Green was charged with numerous drug-related offenses, including misconduct involving a controlled substance. In all, 
she could have faced a total of 54 years in prison if found guilty on all charges. But in 2018, Green pled guilty to a single felony count of misconduct in a plea deal that avoided jail time. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. A well-orchestrated departure plan usually includes having another job lined up, but a 25-year-old engineer banked his future on gift cards. For most people, gift cards are not the first thing that comes to mind when they think about saving for retirement. Vladimir Kavashek, on the other hand, couldn't stop thinking about the cashless currency. The Ukrainian computer software engineer was initially hired by Microsoft as a contractor, but in August 2016, he became a full-time employee of the global tech giant. He packed up and moved to Renton, Washington, about a 25-minute drive from the Microsoft headquarters, and for the next two years, worked to develop the company's online retail platform. The software engineer was responsible, in part, for testing the sales component of Microsoft's Currency Stored Value, or CSV, which among other things included gift cards. As part of the testing process, Microsoft set up an online store that was only accessible to its developers. The test store was used to simulate a consumer's online shopping experience, and while it was stocked with everything the real store would have, the test store would not actually ship any products. The testing site was set up to feature physical products like computers and laptops, and was never intended to include CSVs, such as gift cards. That didn't stop the talented software engineer from adding the items to the virtual catalog. Once he made them available, Vladimir Kavashek used his secured test account to purchase the gift cards. He didn't need the test store to send out physical gift cards. All that was required was the digital information to each one, and the so-called fake product became real. Kavashek started relatively small, stealing amounts of around $10,000 while using his own employee account information. Before long, he was stealing millions of dollars in gift cards from his company. The stolen currency was then resold through legitimate online retailers. Proceeds were then transferred to a Bitcoin service, before finally being deposited into his personal bank accounts. In an effort to cover his tracks, Kravashek started using other employees' test accounts and tried to erase the digital footprint from every transaction leading back to him. During the first seven months of the scheme, Vladimir Kavashek managed to launder almost $3 million in stolen Microsoft gift cards. Authorities estimate that in total, he was able to embezzle more than $10 million in currency stored value. Yeah, that's a lot of gift cards. So what did the 25-year-old spend his illegal fortune on? Not concerned in the slightest with keeping a low profile, he bought a $1.6 million lakefront house and upgraded his ride to a $160,000 Tesla. He was ready for retirement 40 years ahead of schedule. 
Unfortunately for him, though, his employer started to wonder how much they were paying their mid-level developers, and they began to investigate. Despite the efforts made to cover his tracks, Microsoft quickly discovered the scheme and notified authorities. Kavashik was arrested on July 16, 2019, and charged with a long list of offenses for the multi-million dollar theft. The federal charges included five counts of wire fraud, two counts of filing fraudulent tax returns, six counts of money laundering, two counts of accessing a protected device, one count of mail fraud, and two counts of aggravated identity theft. During the investigation, the U.S. Attorney's Office reviewed his IRS tax return forms, which, to their surprise, listed the millions in laundered money. In the tax filing, Kavashik identified the income as a gift from his family. In February 2020, after a five-day trial and only five hours of deliberation, the jury found him guilty on all 18 charges. During the trial, Kavashik told the court that it was never his intention to defraud Microsoft of over $10 million. He insisted that the truth was far more innocent, because in actuality, he had been working on a, quote, special project to benefit the company. Volodymyr Kavashik probably won't be winning Employee of the Month anytime soon, but with a possible 20-year prison sentence to look forward to, it may be a while before he gets another chance. For some, air travel can be extremely stressful and can test the patience of even the most laid-back person. While the majority of travelers tend to remain courteous and civilized, some use the opportunity to devolve into children. No offense to children. Compound that immaturity with alcohol or medication, or both, and you've got a recipe for some amazing YouTube videos. Now imagine that you're a flight attendant trying to keep everyone happy and safe at 35,000 feet until the flight lands. Between the support potbelly pig in row 14 and the group of loud drunk vacationers toward the back, it's amazing more flight crew don't quit mid-flight. But with other jobs typically located closer to the ground, when employees reach the end of their rope, they have the luxury of quitting and walking out on the spot. Quitting in a moving aircraft is not advisable. When possible, it's best to wait until the airplane has come to a complete stop before walking off the job. That's exactly what JetBlue flight attendant Steve Slater did, only he slid out of his job rather than walked. Let me explain. On the morning of August 9th, 2010, Flight 1052 from Pittsburgh to New York's JFK airport was, by all accounts, uneventful, and to the satisfaction of everyone on board, landed on time. According to Slater, as the plane came to a stop, a passenger stood up before the seatbelt sign turned off. He said that he asked the passenger to sit down, but was met with a series of profanities. The 20-year veteran asked the passenger again to remain seated, but again was met with insults. The escalating situation took a fateful turn when the passenger allegedly grabbed their luggage from the overhead bin, only to hit Slater in the head as they pulled it down. According to Slater, when the passenger refused to apologize, he lost it. Witnesses told authorities that he stormed over to the plane's intercom and proceeded to yell at everyone on board, quote, I've been in the business 20 years, and that's it. I'm done. 
With that, he grabbed two cans of beer from the drink cart, walked over to the emergency exit, activated the inflatable chute, and slid down to the tarmac below. Once on the ground, he reportedly threw his jet blue tie on the cement and walked away. We all had an inflatable escape slide at our jobs. I bet 80% of us would quit like that. Anybody out there looking for a job, there is an opening for a flight attendant at JetBlue. That's right. As stunned passengers remained on the plane, he took the airport shuttle to the parking lot, hopped in his car, and headed home. The authorities soon followed, not impressed by the way he gave his two-week notice. The 39-year-old was taken into custody and charged with criminal trespass, reckless endangerment, and criminal mischief. He pled not guilty to all of them. As word of Stephen Slater's epic workplace incident spread, his story of constantly dealing with rude and aggressive customers bought him some sympathy. Many in the service industry found his story relatable, and for a time, he achieved a cult hero status. But as Slater awaited trial, investigators were busy interviewing dozens of witnesses, and what they were learning painted a very different picture of the events that day. I'm fed up flight attendants' bizarre behavior, and the way it appears that he ended his 20-year career is certainly raising, raising some eyebrows this morning. One former colleague told us he had a huge temper and would even storm off when he didn't get his way. He basically told a plane full of passengers that he's mad as hell and not going to take it anymore. But now those passengers and even the police are saying his story just doesn't hold up. Authorities were unable to find any witness to back up Slater's version or even identify the passenger who allegedly insulted and cursed at him. They also told investigators that he appeared intoxicated, had bloodshot eyes, and that he was rude and aggressive on the flight. Later, during a television interview, Slater admitted that, yeah, he had actually been drinking. Several passengers say that you appear to be under the influence. Were you drinking on the job that day? Yes. Truthfully, I, I will admit that um, it was one of those days that drove me to drink, and I admit that I did have a little sip. In October 2010, Slater accepted a plea deal that saw him receive probation, community service, and mandatory counseling instead of a prison sentence. He was also ordered to pay $10,000 to JetBlue for damages. Steven Slater was featured in many headlines that year, but it was Time Magazine's top 10 list of everything 2010, where he found himself on not one, but two lists. He was the top pick on the top 10 fleeting celebrities of the year list, and earned second place on the list of top 10 travel moments. He lost the number one spot on that list to the 2010 volcano eruption that grounded flights across Europe. Being runner-up to that is not too shabby. It's one thing for a frustrated flight attendant to delay a single flight by dramatically announcing his intention to quit. But here's what happened when a single pilot managed to destroy an entire national airline on his last day. It was early in the morning when pilot Chris Fatsway boarded the passenger plane and began the pre-flight check. The 35-year-old was renowned for being the first in his home country of Botswana to qualify as an airline captain. 
he flew with the national carrier, Air Botswana, and had spent over a decade transporting passengers all over the country. Just before 6 a.m., the captain started the engines of the twin-propeller aircraft and taxied toward the runway. The plane would normally have over 40 passengers aboard, but on this flight, it was just the pilot. As the plane prepared for takeoff, the air crew would normally be receiving directions from the air traffic controllers, but things were quiet on the radio. At that early hour of the morning, no one was in the control tower, so no one noticed as the Airbots won a flight headed down the runway and took off. A few minutes after the unauthorized departure, airport staff began arriving to work, including air traffic control personnel. They were surprised to see a single radar blip that appeared to be circling the airfield. Just after 6 a.m., the tower made contact with the plane and identified the pilot as Captain Fatsway. If discovering that an Air Botswana pilot was at the controls brought any comfort to the control tower, it didn't last long. A quick look into the pilot's background sent airport authorities into panic mode. According to his employer, Captain Chris Fatsway had been grounded a couple of months earlier due to medical reasons. No longer able to fly, the airline reassigned him to be an aircraft safety officer. Upset with the airline's decision to ground him, and dissatisfied with his new job, he decided it was time to part ways. Before he officially resigned, though, he wanted one more flight in his old plane. At that early hour, would anyone care? With airport security as relaxed as it was, there was no one around to stop him anyway. Back in the air and still circling the airport, the rogue pilot radioed the control tower. What he told them sent chills. He was going to crash his plane into the terminal. With employees and morning commuters starting to arrive at Botswana's busiest airport, authorities took action immediately. Travelers and staff were evacuated to a safe distance as members of the National Defense Force started to arrive. As officials continued to negotiate a safe resolution, it became clear that Chris Fatsway had no plans to land anytime soon. He admitted to authorities on the ground that his real problem was with the airline's management. He told them that instead of the passenger terminal, his target was now the Air Botswana office. The pilot demanded to speak with an airline executive, but that didn't go as planned. According to reports, just as he was being patched through to the airline's vice president, the plane started to run out of fuel. The call was cut short, along with whatever demands he might have made. The plane headed toward the airport, but it was unclear if he still intended to crash it into a building. Tensions were high on the ground as the airplane lined up for what appeared to be a runway landing. To their immense relief, as officials watched, the plane touched down with the finesse only a skilled pilot could pull off. They had been holding their collective breath for over two hours as the plane circled above. Now, airport and defense officials could exhale, knowing the plane was safely back on the ground and a possible crisis averted. But as the passenger plane rolled down the runway, those same officials noticed something strange. The plane wasn't slowing down. In fact, it looked to them like it was speeding up. And it was. Reaching a speed of over 230 miles per hour, to their horror, 
The plane was heading full speed toward Air Botswana's parked fleet of airplanes. At 8.45 a.m., after enjoying one more flight, the pilot drove the 75-foot-long torpedo into the other planes. In the huge fireball explosion that followed, incredibly, only the pilot was killed. With three of its four passenger planes destroyed in the impact, and the fourth plane out of service for mechanical issues, the country's flag carrier was all but erased in that moment. Air Botswana was, at the time, the only airline operator in the country. If you don't have a plane to destroy your employer's business on your last day, you can always try using large construction equipment. That's what Lynn Benson did, and look where he is now. Actually, I'm not sure where he is. But in August 2012, the 52-year-old Houston, Texas resident was having a really bad day at work. For 12 years, Lynn Benson worked at Ritchie Brothers Auctioneers, the largest heavy equipment auction house in the world. He was responsible for the inspection of every item being auctioned, and by all accounts, was well-respected by his colleagues. However, according to his boss, the two had several conversations about his work performance earlier in the month. His boss thought the talks had gone well, and that Benson had appreciated the feedback. He was grossly mistaken. Like any auction day, everyone knew it was going to be a long shift but nothing they all hadn't done countless times before. The auction on Monday, August 27, 2012, was no different. All day, a seemingly endless line of trucks and heavy equipment were moved into place and sold to the highest bidder. Managers at the facility acknowledged that at the end of an auction day, their employees are, quote, pretty tired and beaten up, but that's not abnormal. About two hours after the facility had closed for the night, Lynn Benson headed back to the office. The long hours and backbreaking work had taken their toll on his sense of team spirit. Deciding that his time at the auction house had come to an end, he considered the various ways to submit his resignation notice. Looking around for a pen and some paper to draft what was likely to be a well-articulated letter of departure, he instead noticed the 18-ton D6 bulldozer parked outside. He climbed in, started it up, and drove through the chain-link security fence. Stepping on the gas, he plowed the earth mover right into the auction house. The exterior glass wall of the building was shattered, leaving a massive hole where the bulldozer went through. Once inside, the machine continued on its path of destruction, hitting structural beams and crushing office equipment before rupturing a water main, flooding the place. He then climbed off and left the bulldozer where it had stopped. It took Lynn Benson just a couple of minutes to cause almost $2 million in damages to his former employer's business. When police arrested him at the scene a short time later, he told them that he had been under a lot of pressure and was tired from a long shift. Lynn Benson was charged with felony criminal mischief. Thankfully, no one was injured in this alternative resignation announcement. Unfortunately, that can't be said of all cases.
When Los Angeles police took 53-year-old David Edward Albert into custody in July 2010, the story that followed was, let's just say, dominating the headlines. Until his arrest, the former maintenance worker was happily employed by a nightclub called Passive Art Studio. The sprawling 7,000-square-foot building was located near Los Angeles International Airport and catered to a specific type of clientele. The club specialized in sexual fetishes, including bondage, dominance, and submission, as well as hosting swinger parties and other adult-themed events. Aside from a dance floor and bar, the club also featured seven dungeons, a torture chamber, a classroom, and an interrogation room. The club's owner, 62-year-old John Levine, had been growing concerned with Albert's behavior toward the club guests. It seemed the janitor enjoyed walking up and sniffing the backsides of female clubgoers. Creeped out patrons complained to the management. Albert was fired. However, David Edward Albert had no intention of giving his boss the satisfaction of firing him. He was going to quit on his own terms. On the night of July 27, 2010, just a few weeks after Albert was let go, he returned to the club to speak with his former boss. Armed with a handgun, Albert said he planned to commit suicide in the club owner's office, but that things went off track quickly. He said that John Levine was in the office and began yelling insults at him before the two became involved in a struggle. According to Albert, at some point during the fight, John Levine was accidentally shot in the back of the head, strangled, shot in the upper back, and then set on fire. Albert also said that during the altercation, John Levine's dog, a five-year-old gray wolf named Coda, was also accidentally shot. Fearing for his life, Albert said that he set the building on fire and ran out. The so-called playground for adults was badly damaged in the fire, and it took x-rays to identify John Levine's remains. David Edward Albert was arrested a short time later, reportedly hiding in the bushes across the street from the burnt-out building. Officers said that when they found him, he was bloody and had sustained minor injuries. He told them that as he ran from the fire to get help, he was hit by a passing car. However, first responders found his story was completely inconsistent with the injuries. He was treated and then arrested, charged with first-degree murder, animal cruelty, and arson. In November 2012, an L.A. court found Albert guilty and sentenced him to 56 years to life. Dear manager, we've been working together for so long. I've got something that I want to tell you, so I thought I'd say it in a song. Fuck this, I quit. Fuck this place, I quit. I don't want to work for someone who treats their employees like shit. I found a way better job. Today was my last day. I know I've got like 10 more shifts to work, but fuck it, I'm not gonna show up to them anyways. Surprise, you can find some other guys who will put up with your shit because you're not worth any more of my time. 
So listen to me when I say Fuck this, I quit Fuck this place, I quit You can take your notice of two weeks And shove it up yours two feet Fuck this, I quit Fuck this place, I quit I might lose all my benefits But I won't lose sleep over this it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you True do. is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by me. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. Cover art and design was created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Get a hold of us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. Fuck this, I quit. Yeah. Fuck this place, I quit. Oh, I'm burning down this bridge and I don't give a shit. Fuck this, I quit. Woo. Fuck this place, I quit. I'm gonna miss my coworkers' lovely faces, but you can take your garbage personality, roll it up into a tiny little ball, mail it to yourself. Wait five to seven business days less If you used express shipping Get the mail that you mail to yourself Open the mail that you mail to yourself Unpack your garbage personality And shove it up your loose bum hole Cause I fucking quit The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.